Welcome to Plaything, conversations about games, interactivity, art, and culture. This podcast is recorded live at the USC Game Innovation Lab, which is part of the USC Games program at the University of Southern California. For more information, follow us on Twitter at USC Game Lab, or visit our website at gameinnovationlab.com slash playthink. All right. Um, thanks, Lauren and Monica, for coming to Playthink. Um, I'm Jane Pinkard. I'm Associate Professor of the Practice of Cinematic Arts here in the Interactive Media and Games Division. And I want to briefly introduce our guests, um, Lauren Ludwig and Monica Miklas are co-founders of Capital W, an immersive theater company. Lauren also hosts the comedy show uh, Lost Moon Radio, which I discovered recently and love. And also, I love passive aggressive history. <gasps> Thank you. As a former historian, that really spoke yeah. to me. Um, you've also worked on other projects like Red Flags, um, Five Pilgrims, um, web series as well. Um, and um, lots of sort of award-winning shows, and a lot of your work can be found on laurenludwig.com. Um, Monica Miklas was the producer on Lost Moon Radio, as well as uh, you served as executive director. Um, you co-produced um, the 2013 Best of Fringe Extensions, which is now known as the Encore Series. Um, you produced special events at LA Chamber Orchestra. You've been very involved in lots of music um, special events. Um, and you also developed a tiny immersive concert experience called Music Box, which I just thought sounded so fascinating. And you are um, online at monicamiklas.com. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about how you all got started. But I, so I was made aware of Capital W and your work through Hamlet Mobile, which showed mm -hmm. at Indiecade in 2016. And that was sort of where I encountered it. Um, I just wanted to read a couple <coughs> of user reviews of Hamlet oh. Mobile, which I found, um, cool. just to give Great. everyone a kind of sense of the impact of your show. Um, and then we'll, we'll talk a little bit about your show. Um, quote, I have found theatrical nirvana, and it is in the back of a tricked out utility van. Whoa. That's amazing. So there's one. <laughs> Another person said, it left me filled with magic. Um, uh, another one said, um, Hamlet Mobile is definitely the most exciting, successful, immersive theater experience I've ever had. Um, and then one person just exhorts uh, readers to get in the van. So, <laughs> awesome. so that's cool. Um, so um, I guess. Maybe I would love to know a little bit more about your background beyond the very brief bios and sort of mm -hmm. what brought you to um, working in the, doing the work that you do. Uh, so I, this is Lauren. I come from a traditional theater background first. I was, I came up doing theater and musicals, traditional proscenium bound theater in high school and then college uh, at Northwestern and then uh, stayed in Chicago after school and started doing more site-specific and group-devised work, but again, traditional, proscenium-bound, non-interactive theater. Um, and then I took a really sharp detour into film and television for a, a while, coming out to Los Angeles and getting involved with that, and I was finding both mediums not quite satisfying in terms of my storytelling needs and what I wanted to explore with story and explore with audience experience. I felt like um, film and theater had some amazing benefits as, um, art forms, but none of them were immersing me in the way I wanted to be fully um, sucked in by my art. So um, I saw Sleep No More in 2015, um, and I had a actually pretty dissatisfying experience in it. It's a beautiful work of art, and I just was, it, I couldn't interact with it right. I kept messing, I missed everything, and I was like lost and confused. <laughs> but I was so amazed by uh, the production design and also just like how, how much emotion it got out of me, even if that emotion was anger um, for missing everything. <laughs> it was great, actually. Um, and it was a real gift because that, that happened just as Monica and I, who tr produced traditional theater together, mm -hmm. were coming to a crossroads where we both were feeling like we wanted to do something new and innovative. Um, and so that sort of birthed the idea of the Hamlet Mobile, um, which sort of, which made, basically was a piece of theater that always keeps you guessing. Every one of the eight segments of it has a different kind of interactivity, a different moment in Hamlet, a different set of characters, um, different things are expected of you. I wanted people to be able to keep collecting bits of the show and also to never quite know what they were gonna get next when they showed up, so, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Um, my background from childhood on uh, was all in traditional theater as well. I was an actor as a kid and a stage manager. Um, but what's interesting, the interesting thread of all of my theatrical work is that almost all of it involves new work, even from college, that point on, um, always working with writers and in writing processes. And then in grad school, I started getting into devised work as well, which was the immediate predecessor to what we started to do with Hamlet Mobile. So I was particularly interested in devising in um, sort of non-traditional ways of developing work. And at the same time, immersive was starting to be in the zeitgeist, and we were hearing about it a lot. And it fit together with those interests about work creation. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and then, so why Hamlet and why the band? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Lauren and I had actually talked about doing a production of Hamlet for a couple years before oh. doing Hamlet Mobile. Yeah. Of all sorts of different ideas, some much more proscenium based, some. <laughs> Let's tell them the crazy one that we were going to do one day, but we haven't done. Our, yeah. our first idea was called Hamlet the Dark Ride. The Dark Ride. And it was based on, you know, Disney Dark Rides, uh, which you guys will know. Uh, and uh, it was basically going to be that you get on this little moving tram and are moved mm -hmm. through the different parts of Hamlet. And sometimes you get off the tram and you go in, and sometimes it's big spaces and small spaces, but um, you are perpetually moved forward, much like Hamlet is in the story. Yeah. Then there was another version we talked about doing that was more of a walking tour. Sort of like, a, like taking the dark ride out onto the street and using different spaces at a festival as uh, different sets within the show. Then there was a talk about our durational version that yeah. lasted like two weeks. Right. And where maybe one oh. scene would happen every other day, sort of mimicking the actual period of time that elapses in Hamlet. Yeah, so we were in that part of the process where you're like pregnant with too many yeah. ideas mm -hmm. and you're kind of waiting for something to click. And in the midst of that, <laughs> our very good friend, uh, Shang Yin Kor, who was, um, who is the set designer for Hamlet Mobile and is an amazing installation artist in her own right and, um, and theater artist. She had recently, she's a friend of ours and she recently bought a van and I was sort of fascinated by American mm -hmm. van culture. Um, and then I saw the sleep no more and I was so mad I didn't have the one-on-ones. Yep. And mm. so I was thinking about one-on-ones and ham Hamlet and van culture. And then one day I was driving around and I was like, oh my gosh, it's Hamlet in a van. <laughs> and like, I didn't know what that meant, but I like called Monica and I was like, it's Hamlet in a van. And, and I said, okay. Yeah. And I was kind of <laughs> sure. Yeah. And I think when we first had the Hamlet in a van thought, we were like, maybe it'll be the whole play in a van just for mm. one or two people. And it takes an hour and a half to do or something. Right. And then as we did the devising process with the actors, it just, I just started to see it in little 15 minute chunks. Mm. And then I started to get excited about collecting chunks and the idea of rewarding audience members if they did collect all, ch all eight chunks. You know, we give you these little punch cards when you come to see the show, and that you punch the shows that you've seen. And mm -hmm. if you collect all eight, you get a prize, which has traditionally been um, a bumper sticker that says, my other car is Macbeth, which is very <laughs> stupid. Or a uh, or, or nunnery or a bus. Nunnery or bus. Oh, or another one was, this van makes dramatic turns. <laughs> so stupid. So just punch. It's a very pun. It's kind of a like an intentionally pun-driven, kind of weird, cheesy world in a way, too. Um, mm. So yeah, anyway, so that started to happen. And the other really cool gift that came out of the devising process was the meta story mm -hmm. about the Moving Shadow, which is the fictional theater company that's put on Hamlet Mobile as a way of mourning the, the death of their artistic director, this man named Marlon Pine. Um, and that was also our way into Hamlet, because there's so many different ways you can direct Hamlet and do Hamlet. And I got really interested in um, it being about a family processing grief, mm -hmm. like and how families process mm -hmm. grief and what a, how a theater family processes grief. Yeah, and the, the destruction of a nuclear family and what happens in the I love that. You said that one day in a rehearsal, you were like, this is about the, a, a nuclear family falling apart. And I was like, what a cool way to think about Hamlet. It's so personal mm -hmm. and, it, and it grounds it. it. You necessarily end up releasing maybe some of the larger political stuff around Norway, um, but that's okay. We weren't doing all of Hamlet. We were doing our little mini Hamlet right. in a small space. So it made sense that it was a small, intimate take on the material. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's more focused on the family and those yeah. personal relationships rather Which, than the kind of geopolitical. Exactly. Background. Yeah. Which, of course, also is fitting to the Hamlet mobile yes. where you cannot have these huge set pieces. Everything is very small. It's very yeah. intimate. It's very personal. So the, the elements of the story that we focused on suited 
Besides, way we told the story. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Physically. Yeah, exactly. And, and we also liked, of course, the mirror of like, there's a touring acting company in the show, right. and we're sort of saying it's about a touring acting company. It kind of, you could imagine it was the players from the original play who had like continued to perform Hamlet in some weird way. I don't know. There's a lot of ways you can read it, so we got excited about all that. And it's literally touring because during the Hollywood French Festival, you yes. would drive the van around, right, and sort of notify people via Twitter. And that's right. It became this kind of almost like, where's the rave going to be? Yeah, <laughs> it was really the closest model was a food truck. Right. That we would tweet out our location at the beginning of the day. People would have to come find the van. Mm. Yeah. yeah, you get that sort of scarcity, that, um, yeah, where's the cool thing happening kind of yeah. uh, buzz. That's what you're looking mm. for. We tried doing the Hamilton in a normal uh, ticketed professional context in Los Angeles, and it was the least successful of the four times we've done it. Mm. Um, the three times we've done it at festivals, Indie being one of them, that was the best version mm -hmm. um, because you really want word of mouth and people talking about it. That's the best Right, way to and do that it. concentration that the festival kind of totally affords yes. you. You yeah. know, and ethically, our dream is always to do it for free. Like, mm -hmm. I kind of want, I want to live in a world where, like, you can just, like, go into a van randomly and have like 15 <laughs> minutes of free theater and then leave being like, whoa, what fun. Like, that's what I want. So our goal Which we experienced and it was pretty euphoric. It's great. It's, great. it's the best. And then, um, yeah, it's a little less fun when you have to take it up, but there are economic mm -hmm. realities sometimes to doing yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I really, so I, I like that metaphor of taco truck um, mm -hmm. a lot because I think the other thing that taco trucks do is they serve communities that otherwise don't necessarily have access yep. to a restaurant nearby or an affordable restaurant nearby. Yes. Um, and so they can sort of target, right, and deliver yeah. where it's needed. And I just love this idea of like, we need the Hamlet mobile in here, stat. Like, <laughs> <laughs> People are hungry for theater. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we just actually toured the work just last weekend to Denver. Uh, it was the first time we'd taken it outside of California, really out of LA County. Yeah. And that was such a great proof of concept mm -hmm. for touring like that and really gives us so many possibilities yeah. going to different places, going to rural places, going to smaller communities. Because we, we don't actually drive the van, we ship the set and then we right. rent a van there. We rent a van locally. It's more cost-effective yeah. than driving a van. It's way more cost-effective than driving. Oh, wow. I know, unexpected. Yeah. yeah. It takes about eight hours to install locally, all mm. said, with them. Yeah. Um, set, the set deck takes forever. It's a very it nuanced, tiny space. It's like a cabinet of curiosities mm -hmm. model. So it's like a lot of stuff gets shoved into this very tiny little. Yeah. <laughs> Lots yeah. of layers of patina over the whole thing. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, and that actually brings me to, I, so I'm so curious about your design and writing process as you develop the show. And I think you've mentioned before and other, when you've talked about it, sort of testing it out, um, you know, the way that we would build a prototype of a game and mm -hmm. play test it. And, yeah, you know, you do yeah. the same thing. But I'm also imagining, like, in a way, it's so much more complex. Um, because you have live actors and you've got a live audience and you've got you know, the set, and, and anyway, so tell me more about, about that, so like, what funny. is that, what is that process like? Yeah, it's funny that you think that ours is more complex, because playtesting games, and accounting for all the ways human behavior can work, but having a machine account for it feels so much more complex to me. Yes. Because of course, live actors can be trained to improvise. Um, and so that's definitely a part of what we do with actors now. I mean, Hamlet Mobile was our first immersive show, so it was a lot of trial and error. Mm -hmm. um, we did what you might call a traditional theater devising process. I cast like four actors who I, through the casting process, discerned they could do Shakespearean language, modern naturalism, um, they could all improvise, and they were brave and emotionally accessible. Mm -hmm. So very, very versatile actors. And then over like several weeks, we would have rehearsals where we're doing ensemble building, um, different like, viewpoints and Sanford Meisner based exercises like different traditional theater exercises in the midst of doing pretty intensive table work and brainstorming around just going through all of Hamlet mm -hmm. and I'm just like and that's also how I have ideas so as they're saying that we're also having epiphanies about like well what if you did this way like what if you did the first court scene in Hamlet um, like what would that be that's act two scene one yeah uh, or no act one uh, one two sorry one, two. what if you do the first court scene in Hamlet and but you do it like a family fight like you're on a road trip and you're fighting with your mom and dad and like it's like you know you're so they're so mad at each other and like you have that idea just kind of sitting around a table together um, so you're gathering 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 ideas then I took like a full month uh, to go write first drafts of everything and by the time I went to go write I knew it was going to be small segments I was pretty sure 
And as I went to write, I was like, yeah, this is coming out in small segments. And they were all sort of different kinds of interactivity right from that first draft. Um, one of them was guerrilla theater that we would go accost audience members on the street, just whoever was around. Other ones you had to come in the van. Some was for one person and some was for 12 people. Like it was a huge range. Um, and then we started what you'd call the play testing. I came back and I put them, I staged them with them. And then after just one or two stagings, like I'm always the first audience member. Mm -hmm. I'm in the position that the audience will be. And then it's always Monica next. And then it's our designers. And then eventually it's like friends, you know, not quite strangers, but friends. Um, and then what we didn't do on Hamiltonmobile, but what I've done in every other show, is then eventually bring in strangers. Yeah. They do the show for free because they know, uh, because they want to do it for free, but they mm -hmm. know that we're going to be observing and it might be a little rough. Um, mm -hmm. And that's where you start to learn, oh, people all have this crazy impulse I never would have thought. <laughs> yeah. <Okay>. Oh, <laughs> if we don't tell them to walk through this door, they're yeah. going to all go over here. They're yeah, just going to stay seated. All the, you have to have actual bodies yes. in the show to mm -hmm. see what they're going to do. But you have to make sure that you're at a point where you're ready for them, that you've, you've done your due diligence so yeah. that you've thought through all the things you can. Yes. And then you bring people in to see what the things you didn't think of were. Yeah. Which hopefully shouldn't be, too, it's never been It's never crazy knock on wood. No, what ends up happening is like mm -hmm. most people want to be told what to do and don't want to break the show. Right. That's mm -hmm. like the default is mm -hmm. I'm going to break the show, help. Mm -hmm. um, and then you kind of have to, if you want higher interactivity, you actually have to train them into that sooner. Yeah. That's harder, I find, than less interactivity. Yeah. That is so interesting. I was going to ask about sort of the onboarding experience because mm -hmm. I know when you yeah. run it, um, you'll have sometimes like an actor outside or like people fold origami or there's a little bit of yeah. like play around the space before people enter the van. Well, something we always talk about is where does the experience of the show begin? Yeah. Is the is the onboarding or the box office in world or out of world? And what do we gain from either model? So in Hamlet Mobile, the box office was all in, in world. I would say 80% in world. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We would break character if we really needed to, to really explain something to someone. But there was a lot of mystery because there wasn't too much that you had to know in advance in order to stay safe and have a good time. Whereas for instance, the show we did this summer and this fall, Rochester 1996, it was a show where people start off in one location, they then get in a van with us, we drive them through the city and they go to another location. There's a lot more moving parts and the box office for that was out of world. Mm -hmm. And because we felt like we had to deliver warnings very clearly, we had to deal with waivers very clearly. And we were also playing around with flexing the audience's imagination more mm -hmm. than other immersive Yep. is frankly like I, we've noticed a trend in immersive theater that's <clears> moving more and more towards dissolving the lines between reality to the like uh, and the show uh, moving into the ARG space and there's sort of a hierarchy that's developed around that that I'm not very comfortable with because I think it acts like audience members can't imagine or can't like mm. discern the beginning and end of the piece or that by discerning the beginning and end of the piece the piece is lessened which I just patently don't agree with. Um, because then it's basically acting like every novel or movie I've loved is lesser than every immersive Because I know when I picked up the book. Yeah. Well, it gets crazy. back to this idea of frames and the, I think people are so afraid of, of being perceived as a framed experience. Yes. That they build this, these tethers out into their quote unquote real world. Right. And that doesn't, you don't necessarily have to have that in order for something to be immersive, yes. to feel immersive once you're in the experience. Well, and our assertion is even, for some experiences, it's irresponsible not to have a frame on the piece. So mm -hmm. Rochester 1996 deals with queerness, domestic violence, um, Christianity, um, poverty, all of these really intense and important themes and storylines. And so it was actually really important to me that people be able to clock in at the beginning and then clock out at the end. Right. And that actually you, you, there be an onboarding and an offboarding emotionally. Mm -hmm. So I think if you're going to take people to pretty intense spots, um, you really need to uh, create safety. And I think actually the beginning and end are where you do that safety. Totally. It's where do you enter and then leave yeah. the magic circle. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. Um, now, Red Flags, which was our third show, that was the show where we were dealing with dissolving the lines between reality and, and um, fiction. So that's the one that's a one-on-one, -on -one, hour and 15 minute experience where you go on a bad first date with the character. Oh, yeah. Yes, <laughs> it's just sort of crazy. Um, and the thing with that is once you bought your ticket, 
um, you get an email confirmation from the character that your mm -hmm. app date has been set up. And then you email back and forth with her a little bit and you fill out a dating profile. And then on the day of your date, quote unquote, you get some texts from the character. Um, so like you're, once you've bought your ticket, it's only you and the character. And that was something we were playing with pretty intentionally. Um, and I think it actually makes sense that after we did that, we did go over to the other end of the spectrum right. with Rochester 1986 because we kind of tried both extremes. Mm -hmm. Totally. And I will say from a producing perspective, in order to set that world up for red flags, all of the marketing of the show is very clear that this is a show about a date. It's yeah. not a real date. Yes. All of our ticketing is extremely clear. You're buying a ticket to a show that's about a date. This is an actor. So yes. multiple times people have to kind of sign off on this is all pretend, this is all pretend, this is all yeah. pretend, so that we then feel responsible turning yeah. it over to, okay, you're now in this kind of light ARG going into the, mm -hmm. the fictive world. Yeah, and, it even, and that show does have a very clear endpoint that the audience isn't aware of as it happens, but in retrospect realizes is the endpoint. The character right. sends you one last text after the date, and that's the last you'll ever hear from him, no matter how, them, no matter how many times you text again. Mm -hmm. So we kind of draw our own line in the sand, and the audience kind of learns what it is if they push it. But you'd be surprised, it's like she's done over 120, 130 versions of that Maybe date. Close to 150. Okay, we're, wow. yeah, so she's done that over 150, about 150 times, and we've only had people reach out to her in the real world in a way that was a little on the borderline, maybe three or four times. Yeah. Mm -hmm. people, people fundamentally know it's a show. Um, so even when you erase that line, people yeah. create the line themselves. Mm -hmm. And it, so when you're talking, yeah, I, 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 I have so many ideas. I mean, I have more <laughs> questions, but I want no, to sort brainstorm. of come to this. Um, you know, come back to the magic circle idea, which is obviously something we talk about a lot in game design. Mm -hmm. And um, there's this uh, theory of um, brink play, which maybe you've. I don't. You've, I don't know um, that. Cindy Paremba writes about it. She's a game scholar. And she argues that um, when you create a frame, it actually allows people to push themselves yes. and be more experimental and try things because they know there's a frame. And so the frame creates, you know, some. Um, you know, conceptual differentiation between themselves in the real world and themselves in this play space. Um, so I love the idea that you're like, let's keep the frame. Sometimes the frame is appropriate. It's it great. Well, and it, doesn't that mm -hmm. in some ways explain why people act so uh, the way they do on the internet? Because they believe mm -hmm. it's a it's a frame space, but in actuality, it's, it's real life. Right. I yeah. mean, it's 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 interesting. That was certainly our theory with Rochester 1996. The people would go farther emotionally if we let them know where the frame was. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's interesting. I, but there are other people we know who swear by the ARG model, but that's just not exactly our, that's not like our joy space as creators. Mm -mm. I, I feel like we'll still play with it sometimes, but it will probably never be our, our bread and butter full time. I agree. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I agree. Yeah, I, in my graduate work, I studied people who uh, produce shows at fringe festivals. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I looked at was scaffolding, which is a, of course, borrowed from education theory, but the idea that scaffolded experiences are often much more enriching than free-for-all experiences. Oh, well, how would you define those two things? I don't know about that. Um, so for instance, this comes from uh, Nina Simon, who wrote the Participatory Museum, which oh, I recommend yes. to everybody. Um, and she gives an example of like an interactive exhibit at a museum. And one example <laughs> is you could stand and record yourself uh, responding to the prompt, what does justice mean to you? And like nobody did it. Mm, interesting. Because it's like, <laughs> it's so big, it's yeah. like, what? Ah. But then if you give people something more structured and more scaffolded, like highlight the words that remind you of justice or, or take this post-it note and put it on this board in the category that you agree with, mm. people are really mm. eager to do that kind of thing. So mm. she talks about creating participatory experiences that have these kind of boundaries or training wheels on them. That's interesting. So that it's not just like, here's a blank piece of paper, yeah. but like, here's a worksheet. Yeah. Well, we borrow from the gaming world pretty overtly in terms of how our first 10 minutes of each experience work. We always think about um, 
uh, how are we going to onboard them in a way where they have to complete a little mini version of the, the big skill that they're going to do throughout the mm -hmm. game, which you guys are so familiar with. So, like, which I recently learned is from Half Life. That's the first game that had the like in-game tutorial. That's what cool. Yeah. <laughs> I just <laughs> learned that. I've never heard you year. say a gaming term. It was, it was really neat. <laughs> or just a game, any yeah. game ever. Um, uh, I come from a video gaming family, but you do not. I do not. Um, uh, uh, Tetris. <laughs> cool, 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 cool. Uh, Tetris is great. Um, yeah, I we we think about that overtly. Is like um, definitely, uh, particularly in like red flags where the audience is accounting for ba basically like forty percent of the content. We were like, okay, right in the first page of the script. She's going to, this actress is going to ask you a question you have to have a verbal answer to or the play won't continue. She touches you um, and she like says something really emotionally inappropriate and boundaryless because that's kind of her character. Um, and like, so like you're getting a whole little teaser of the whole rest of the mm -hmm. thing. And if you're not okay in that first minute or two, like you're, it's not gonna be great. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Do, has anyone ever her. bailed? No. No, we've had a couple of people should have. <laughs> and they've gotten, and they've gotten close. We've had some people yeah. close. Or she shares. She really escalates the emotional intimacy in the last bit of a the, the piece. This is a spoiler, um, but she at the very end, in the last twenty percent, is basically like, "The date's going so terribly. I hate dates. They're so fake. Can we just pretend to be a couple? Can we like just pretend we're a year into dating?" And ninety percent of the people say yes. Um, and what happens if you say yes is that she moves and sits right next to you and she takes your hand and she interlaces holding hands with you and like strokes your hand. Now we've been moving towards that in terms of physical cues through the whole piece. So like, like I said, she hugs you when she meets you. There are a couple, one time she leans and puts her hand on your knee. Um, like it's all actually very precise when it's happening and it's mm -hmm. happening at regular interviews, but the intervals, but not too many intervals. And if you have signaled enough times before that that you don't want to be touched, she doesn't go for your hand. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like that kind of stuff. The, the actress is trained to read those cues and to figure out together if it's going to be okay. And if it's not, she just backs off. Right. And there's a couple sections within the show, sort of modules, if you will, that she can skip if she senses someone is truly uncomfortable. Right. And it's going to start to be damaging for them. She just right skips over that section of the script and keeps going. Yeah, if you don't agree to be a couple, she skips to basically the climax of the yeah. show with a little bridge to get there. Um, and even if you do agree to be a couple, if you're quite uncomfortable, there's some questions about sex and basically like, you, it's a group storytelling. I mean, you're essentially LARPing. It's LARP adjacent. She's like, by that point, she makes you kind of like, she makes you kind of storytell together what your first sexual experience was like, like all this like intimate <laughs> stuff. I know it is crazy when I say it out loud out of context, but it makes, sense, <laughs> in the it makes sense in the show, I swear. Um, and there are people that she skips that with because that's mm. pretty intense. So yeah, it just depends. But that's hard to train actors to do that. I'm realizing yeah. now I get in some ways very lucky or I intuitively had a sense with her she could do it. I've known Lauren Flans, our main actress who's done Red Flags for many years in Lost Moon Radio which is a comedy group we have together. But she's also a gifted dramatic actress and a gifted improviser and really good at reading people. And so other actors have to be trained to read people as well as she does. Um, so we do exercises to mm -hmm. do that. Yeah, it was mm -hmm. really interesting to me when you said you cast a show and then you sort of write it. Every time, basically. Yeah. So, yeah. Really hard to do the reverse. I've now done the reverse a few times. We've, we've subbed in actors. Mm -hmm. But I love writing stuff from scratch and I love writing it for the actors in mind. I find that very inspiring. So that's definitely my preferred way to, for all new pieces, that's my preferred way to work, which is what we're planning to do with, um, yeah, all of our, really all of our shows. I can't imagine ever just going away and writing it and then bringing it back. It sounds terrible. Seems very strange. Yeah, that would be strange. So I want to go back to a comment that you made about how most people get into the van and are like, I don't want to break the show. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't want to. And in fact, there was a review I read of Hamlet Mobile where um, the reviewer said exactly that. He said that he felt like he did the one um, breakup sex yeah. um, where Hamlet starts on the floor of the van. Uh -huh. um, he's sitting, yeah, and he's right. sitting there and he kind of just stares at the, you know, at the audience member. Mm -hmm. um, and the audience member said it, th there was a moment when he was like, I felt like I wanted to like reach out and say, hey, dude, it's OK. Or like yes. somehow say something. But he didn't because he was like, I'm going to break the show. I don't yep. want to get. Um, so is that something? So you play in that space because a lot, you know, that 
intimate setting is very, um, you know, confrontational, right, mm. in a way. I mean, not in a bad way, but... Yeah, how do you mean? Like, emotionally confrontational? Yeah, because yeah. they're right there. Yeah. And so you kind of can't ignore it, or you can't hide. Yes. You can't, you know, as an audience member, so it's almost like you're being dared to say something or do something, or at least I've felt that. Yeah. Um, and I wonder sort of how you... What have been some of the responses and reactions that you get, and what what are you trying to get? Are you trying to get people to mm. participate or say something? Or, well, I just sat uh, in Denver. We went with a crew of three to do Hamlin Mobile there, and we kind of rotated positions. So I was the stage manager in the front seat of the van during that piece during breakup sex. So witnessed from the front seat probably eight, ten, twelve. Oh. Oh, two between the two shows, yeah. To like do like 15, 15 yeah. runs of that. And 75%, nobody says anything. Yeah, exactly. And I think it has to do a lot with eye contact. Mm -hmm. That, and, and like how people are reading the actor. I think in a lot of our stuff, it, you direct people to use eye contact to try to engage an interaction or to avoid one yeah. or to, to signal like this is a place where you're you're listening more because I'm in my own world just like it would be kind of rude to like walk up to somebody in a cafe that wasn't looking to talk to someone and talk to them but yet some people do it because yeah. they don't read those signals the same way yeah. because humans are diverse yeah. and varied in their yeah. communication yeah I feel like with Hamilton with the eight different kinds of interactivity, if there's if there's a kind of interaction we actually need, you will know. Mm. And if you're not sure, it's because we're open with a huge range of, mm -hmm. of activities. So I feel like in terms of when we really need you to be interactive, we'll ask questions of you. And that'll signal that it's time to start talking. Mm -hmm. and, and we do that in just one of the Hamiltonville pieces because when we wrote it, I was much less interested in the audience verbally participating. Right. Um, and as I've gone on in the work, particularly going all the way to Red Flags, like it became, I wanted it to be, you were half the script as the audience. So it's very clear immediately, you have to interact. It's clear in the onboarding at home, like over email, you have yeah. to respond or the show doesn't happen. So Things are expected of you. Yes. If you don't respond to this dating profile, yeah. you're, you're hurting your own experience. Yes. So the confusion is, is I want that in Hamilton Um But you're right, that's confrontational. And um, you said something really interesting about how you can't hide and that is what I think of as immersive theater is it's theater where the audience and the actor have both agreed not to hide mm -hmm. like even sleep no more like you're literally behind a mask but you're actually still very physically you're not hiding you're you could destroy the set I mean you're like you are present in that space and not only that like people might come up and take it off the mask off of you like it, it's still you're still really present and it's not the same as the idea of disappearing outside of the proscenium like that's the only thing immersive theater isn't. So even when, act, when the audience member is cast as an invisible eye, I still feel like you're not hidden in the way you are with proscenium theater. So I think you're right. Um, <laughs> yeah, and the, and the other thing um, that comes to mind is um, the fact that you structured Hamlet Mobile in snippets, um, you know, playing with sort of nonlinear storytelling or fragmented storytelling. Um, and also with red flags, while it's not, you know, explicitly structured in snippets, because it is so dependent on improvisation, and as you say, you know, the audience is half the script. So I love this idea that the audience then becomes a co-creator of that mm, show absolutely. experience, yeah. right? In the way that we often talk in games that the player becomes a co-creator of the game yeah. experience, working alongside the designer yeah. to explore the space and, you know, to, yeah, yeah. so, um, is there, so do you feel like that's a direction that you want to push more in? And, and how would you go about doing that, do you think? That's a good question. <laughs> I mean, I would love to get, uh, I'm, I'm personally creatively interested in, in moving towards things where huge swaths of the show are unwritten until the group devises mm -hmm. them, the audience and the actors together devise them in that space together. I'm particularly interested in that around rituals and small temporary societies. I, I do want to do a show of duration within the next year mm -hmm. and a half that is at least 12 if not 24 hours and does involve different rituals and ceremonies that could only come out of that group being there together. I want to make more 
one-of-a-kind experiences. Like, it will never be the same way twice. Even more than just because I edited it differently in my head because I saw Hamilton Beale in a different order. I mean, that's the lowest level of audience um, authorship, I would say. Or that I was in a, a 3D, fully realized space, and during one performance I looked here, yes. and another mm -hmm. performance I looked over here, I was I was the, the lens on yes. the experience. And yeah. that matters, and it is it authorship, but it's, but it's, I think, the lower end of authorship. Yes. I'm, I want to see what we can move towards in terms of the higher ends of authorship that still feel like we curated something for you and we are guiding it, scaffolded, as you said. Yes. And um, I, that's the balance. Along with that, I'm very interested in experiences that uh, provide a platform for audiences to interact with each other and not just with performers or with right. the physical environment, but where they are co-creating for one another. We saw that a little bit in our piece and the drum, which was um, uh, an adaptation of a book of poetry that was staged with modern movement choreography in the home of the poet. But it was also structured as a dinner party. So you arrive, you do parts of the show, then there's a central dinner. We actually served food to all these and people wine, yeah. and wine. And there was an open-ended or scaffolded scene within the dinner that then got audiences talking to each other so their experiences were all changed by the stories they told to one another. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of the show, every time it actually became a house party. We brought out the wine <laughs> again, we let people stay. And there are friendships that people developed being at that show together. Like multiple yeah. people have told us, oh, I met so-and-so and, -so and the drum, we're gonna go hang out. Yeah. Which was pretty it is special. Yeah, I would say like that competes, for me, that then competes with wanting to deliver a good narrative that makes logical sense and has emotional payoff and climax, which is also hard to do if the audience is hugely participating. So that was the balance with red flags, is like they're talking a lot, but I actually want to make sure they're getting a particular story. So those two impulses compete in me personally um, as a writer and as a creator, and I, and I like that tension. So I like moving towards, I think we can move in some ways to both extremes. Like Rochester was basically like a play. It always went the same way every night, but it was an immersive experience version of a play. And Red Flags is like really, really participatory. Like how can we keep exploring those extremes and maybe combine them into one piece? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and um, so when you were talking, I saw a, um, a video of a talk you gave at the Immersive Design Summit oh, yeah. in, uh, earlier this year yep, yep, in yep. January. And you showed a little diagram of the, and the drum sort of narrative structure. Yeah, and there the flowchart. Like, the flowchart, it looked like branching narrative. Like, yeah, I, I recognized it, it immediately. I was like, oh, that's branching narrative. So again, totally. again I was like, wow, that's so interesting yeah, that so much overlap. we have like mm -hmm. sort of similar techniques. So there's like welcome where all the audience is together. And then there's individual tracks yep, where they go tracks. off and do something else. And then they all come back together. So it's like you choose, right? You choose to go off in a different place, but then you have to come back and then, and yeah. that seemed to me like a really clever way of um, satisfying the need to have some sort of, you know, um, climax and form and yeah. something that everyone can share, right? Yes, and the drum was set up around the idea of an emotional or energetic climax, not a narrative one. Mm. So it's like there's, there's group, there's like big group thing and then individual tracks, middle group thing, individual tracks, final group thing. And the three big group times together, they kind of build. And like, and even the individual tracks, like there are just some things that you feel are supposed to come earlier and there are things you feel are supposed to come later, particularly if you're thinking about how a dinner party arcs. So like wilder, more raw, more exposed poems and dances and emotional moments, those have to come in the second half. Um, and things where we're like getting to know each other, just introducing themes, those have to come in the first half. So if you start to structure it uh, just the feeling of the thing. I mean, it's like putting together a good mixtape. It's like, ah, mm. oh, this song just goes <laughs> earlier. Like, it just does, you know? And so you put those things earlier, and you put the things that just feel later, later, and then eventually it feels like a climax. So I'll say that show wasn't 100% successful. If you got certain tracks, you probably wouldn't feel there was a climax. Like, mm. I don't think it was a total success, and that was partially because of time. I don't think I got to craft all the tracks as perfectly as I wanted to. Mm -hmm. So if I was to redo that kind of experience, which we will, I think, again, then I, I want to make sure I have the time and the development process to make sure every track does add up to something. Mm -hmm. So that's the challenge with the multi-track. So, such an interesting idea. So um, I want to make sure I leave room for um, questions from everyone else. Um, 
Um, we've already talked a little bit about this sort of this idea of you know what is next and where do you want to push what Capital W does and obviously scaling up from Hamlet Mobile um, is an interesting right and challenging project. So um, yeah, what are some ways? I mean, we've already talked a little bit about the future yeah. for Capital W, but well, there's a couple different ways that we think about scale. Um, one that immersive creators are always talking about is throughput. Like, how can you just get more people in to see your work all the time? But that's not the only way to think about growth. Um, so we also think about how do we go to more different places? Mm -hmm. How are we uh, extending runs longer? How can we make things sustainable for actors, both financially and emotionally, so that yeah. they can run a show for a longer period of time mm -hmm. to create more opportunities for people to see it? I'm always, yeah, drawn to do work that is a small enough group that you can get to know everybody else in the group through the course of the show, and that's because I'm fundamentally drawn to make sublime or transcendent experiences for people, which you can only do if there's safety. So, you know, a dinner party is a transcendent experience if it's a good one. You kind of feel like you went on a journey that's far longer than the two hours you were actually there. Um, and I want to keep doing things like that for people. Um, I want to, I'm, I'm compelled to do that. Um, to create sites for people to process um, emotion um, and spiritual understanding and just making sense of what, who they are and what they're doing here. Um, it, that is the kind of work I want to do. Um, and that can be hard or it can be joyful. It can be, I want the whole range of human feelings in that space. So that means that we always need to do work that is safe um, and creates that frame so that people can, like we said, go to the brink. Um, so I want to keep looking for work that goes to the brink and basically gives audience members the experience that I think my actors have in my shows. So I think the actors, I think the first thing I figured out as a director was how to, have, how to help actors have transformative experiences. And then the second thing has been how to have audience members have that same experience or their version of that experience. Um, so that's why I'm interested in playing with duration because some of it just is about time. It's just how long you're all together. Mm -hmm. um, but it's also about what you do with them in that time, obviously. So uh, we want to keep playing with that. Mm -hmm. yeah. Awesome. All right, let's uh, open it up to other folks for questions. Uh, so fantastic, so fascinating, wonderful work. Um, uh, you know, just, just riffing off that last bit of the conversation, um, you know, one thing I, I, I'm really uh, inspired by is the uh, federal project number one stuff that was done during the uh, uh, Works Progress Administration. Uh, yeah. Um, and, uh, you, you know, one of the things that they go to towns and they devise theater in the mm -hmm. towns with, with the people of the town to help the, the country to tell its own story and really to mend it together after, in the wake of a crisis that's not totally dissimilar to the one that we're in now. So I was wondering if, you, if you've had any thoughts about taking your devising process mm. also into sort of audience space and working with audiences and maybe diverse and, and different and unusual audiences like drive out to Kentucky or something and do this. Um, any thoughts about that or plans? It's something I've certainly thought about and am eager to do. Um, Lauren has done a little bit, has done some workshops, like two-day workshops mm -hmm. um, with folks doing that kind of stuff. And we're going to go to the University of Illinois in February, and we'll do some of that with students there. But I think you're right. I think part of doing that there is about us starting to model what's our version of that. Right. I've been lucky enough to study with some other theater companies who've done some of that in the past. Um, and there are definitely artists out there doing that work. Um, but you know, they're not doing, there's only, I only know one artist doing that work in the immersive space explicitly. Um, uh, Michael Tara Garver, yeah. who's based in New York, and her work is, is like that. Um, there's so much more room for, for it because I think, you're right, you're creating basically this sort of like wonderful creative space that the, the audience becomes the performers, but then they give it back to a new audience, their community. So you're still fundamentally, I guess, doing a similar process to what we do. You're just starting with a group of potentially non-actors. So right. I think we'd be really compelled to do that. I feel like the first phase of Capital W has been about us learning the skills of this version of the art form, even though we'd come with decades of experience before yeah. this, like doing it in this version of it. Uh, and then I, I'm hoping that phase two can be a deeper sense of mission and community engagement in the way you're talking about. That's right. Try and hold it. <laughs> oh, I just pulled that. Yeah. I have that same moleskin notebook. 
It's a great. It's a great, great, great color. color. <laughs> it's a vibrant yellow. <laughs> really great to put ideas into. Yeah. Um, so you recently took the show to Denver. Mm -hmm. um, and I grew up in Denver, so I know that the weather this time of year <laughs> is quite cold. Oh, yes. And so yeah. I wanted to ask how weather and other sorts of uh, oh. uncontrollable contexts for a show like this <laughs> can affect and impact the, the show on a logistical level, but also on just like an emotional level for, for people in it. Wow. Good question. <laughs> well, it's so funny you ask that because the last 48 hours of my time in Denver, 24 of Lauren's, uh, we're in three to five inches of snow. Oh. Um, we didn't have a plan before we... We didn't have a plan. <laughs> About snow. two weeks before we went to Denver, it suddenly occurred to me to Google the weather. Yeah. And I realized Lauren it was me. 30 degrees cooler than we'd ever done it. And so the first thing was actor safety. Right. And, and a good, like, 15 degrees colder than when we were there last year. We were at, yeah. in Denver with red flags last fall. Yeah, same, to be fair. Exact same week. Yeah. And it was not that cold. <laughs> that, yeah, that's actually why we had waited so long, because we were like, well, we know what Denver ah, November is like. Denver. <laughs> yeah, but it turns out it's very variable. Um, yeah. So we, yeah, so actor safety, so major costume adjustments was yeah. the first thing. Actor and crew, because yes. traditionally in Hamlet Mobile, the box office is outside on the sidewalk, and the, the crew, who you're looking at, uh, we sit outside in little like, mechanics uniforms check people in so yeah. we realized we were gonna have to move all of that inside yeah which then also changed where we set up the van yeah so you so it's all those concerns it's mostly logistical to start I mean the good thing about Hamilton is it is a working van so we can turn it on and run the heat right. so like some of the basic things of oh my gosh how will they deal when they're in the van it's taken care of but up uh, half the shows are outside two of the four we only did four of the eight in Denver and two of them are outside so, or at least half outside. So you really do have to think about like, can we stand out at, in, the, in the cold? And by the fourth day, we actually switched the piece we were gonna yeah. do. Because when we got there, it was snowing. And we were like, we cannot do the, the outdoor piece in the snow. It's it was gonna crazy. be too cold and too, it involved getting in and out of the van a number of times. And like with all the water, the mm -hmm. thing I forgot about yeah. snow is that it's wet when it melts. <laughs> yes. I, well, I don't do this. We're such lived in California since yeah. 2005. Um, yeah, so we couldn't have people getting in and out because it was a trip hazard. Yeah, so like, you know, that's the logistics. It's mostly logistical first, and then you frantically run around and like crazily hope everybody's okay, and then you <laughs> kind of get the show running, and then you suddenly like sit back and are like, oh, what is it like in the snow? I guess I'm learning as it happens in front of me, and it's beautiful. It I mean, pretty magical, it's amazing. It, well, it makes you, you think about the meta narrative of the moving shadow. Mm -hmm. We're supposed to be like this ragtag theater company who basically live out of the van and are like acting themselves into the ground. They're basically trying to act themselves to death in a way um, mm -hmm. because they're all a little emotionally suicidal because they can't get over that their sort of Svengali has died and none of them are processing their stuff in a healthy way. And, it, um, and I, and I, thought about them working through the snow and working through the rain and like as long as the actors are actually okay that feeling of them working through anything doing it through anything actually feels amazing and really like leans into some of the themes and the, and the yeah the like gooey center of the show so yeah. um it was a cool gift once we figured out how to do it in a way that wasn't going to kill somebody <laughs> yeah. which wasn't which, which wasn't too tactical. i mean it, we were pretty if it had gotten, yeah, if it had gone below 20 degrees, we would have just canceled. Like, at a certain point, you're like, we'll cancel. It's like, it's just theater. Hold on. Yeah. What are we doing? <laughs> Wait a minute. It's just theater. We can just stop. don't need to hurt anybody over it's this. It's all made up. Yeah. So, I, so no one should die over it. But, yeah. So it was, it was cool. Hmm. Um, so you spoke about wanting to animate the audience and the set or with the actors but with each other mm -hmm. so I guess like ideally how would you facilitate those interactions between the audience members to get them uh, wanting to engage with each other and then following the cues to return to the scene's actual narrative like like a, a, a maybe like maybe what can you imagine what your balancing tactics would be or maybe what you'd yep. want them to be mm -hmm. I'll talk about the dinner party scene in Amazon yeah. because this is where we pioneered what what looks improvised to the audience, but is actually deeply scripted. So what we started exploring in that and then continue with Red Flags is using culturally understood social scripts to get the audience to engage in a way that they think is more improvisational than it is. 
So in uh, and the drum, when you get to the dinner party scene, there's kind of a free-for-all where people are getting sad and then dinner's getting passed out. And some people might sit there awkwardly not wanting to talk and some people might talk with a friend they came with and all that's fine. And the actors are talking to you a little bit, but mostly they're just trying to get you sad. And then we all kind of get seated and then one of the actors, and this is the beginning of the scripted section, does a toast. And then coming out of the toast, she's kind of like, I want to hear a good juicy story. Who's got like a really great... Uh, well, first she was like, "Who's this, is, the, this meal looks amazing. What is the best meal you've ever had at a dinner party or whatever? Um, and one of the actors responds first, I think? No. No, uh, they no, go straight to audience. Straight to the audience. You get mm. two audience responses, and then an actor pipes in with, I've got one, and then that brings them back to the script. So coming out of the actor's story about their best meal, then there's a bunch of actor dialogue that, again, they're playing in a way that feels improvisational. And often the audience wouldn't realize we'd gone back to the script. Uh, and then coming out of that, we get to the second major audience interactive section there, which is sort of sex stories, which we do organically get to, I, I swear. Um, and so then it's kind of like, who I want to hear a juicy sex story. And so at that point, this answers one of your questions, which is audience members want to engage when they see when we remember that other people are fundamentally interesting. So you kind of have to remind everybody, oh yeah, everybody's got a whole wealth of stories and like everyone's a sexual being and like, oh, there's all these like things I could learn about you. So um, the prompt has to be worth it, right? That's the first thing in terms of audience interaction. It's got to actually be cool and interesting. So then we would get into sex stories and then that would start to naturally break off into side conversations. And then one, again, one of the actors would basically call for like, okay, I've got, no, no, none of these are as good as mine. And then they would go into theirs. But of course that's scripted again. Uh, and that, and then out of that comes more dialogue and blah, 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 blah. And then we, it would kind of intentionally devolve into a free-for-all at a certain point. And in, in the drum, we were flipping between naturalism and really like expressionist theatrical languages. So at a certain point, one of the actors, when things were kind of at a peak, one of the actors would like jump up on the table and like begin doing one of the poems like very declaratively in a way that switched the genre of the evening mm. again. But again, that was, a, that was a language that we'd established. But it basically is like, oh shit, we're back in the show. So in that piece, it was like that. You know, in Red Flags, there's no, you never jump back into anything. You never, you, we try to make sure you never know when you're on script. Yeah, the, the key is trying to find ways that, as Lauren just said, establish the language of what you're doing and what the level of interaction is. And then you show and don't tell what you're gonna do next. Yes. Mm -hmm. You know, in Red Flags, think about a date. We all know that early on in a date you talk about, so where do you live in town or what's your job? So when she asks you, so where do you live in town, and then you answer, then she's instructed to pause, and then nine out of ten people say back to her, well, and what about you? Mm -hmm. And that's scripted, but you feel like you improvised it. But we mm -hmm. knew you were going to say it. And if she doesn't, and if you don't say it, she says to you, are you going to ask me where I live or... And then she'll be like, sorry, it's just, you know, kind of like a bad sign if you, like, won't ask me any questions about myself. So she kind of <laughs> awkwardly teaches you early on that, like, you have to be participating in the normal date script. Um, and then people do, and they feel like they made it up. But it's the only logical reaction to what she did for most people. Now, not everybody follows not that. Not everybody. But, but most people want to obey the cultural norms mm -hmm. that we've been Yeah, invented. the rules of the road. Yeah, and even people who think that they're like iconoclasts, actually, we follow so many cultural rules all the time, like yeah. we're all wearing pants. <laughs> you know, like, we That's true, we did all wear pants. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're totally right. You know, like, yeah. we, we do so many things just automatically mm -hmm. in order to fit in with and most people, and they bought the ticket. So yeah. they want to see the experience we crafted for them. They don't want to fully break the Sometimes. show. The funny thing about Red Flags is she offers to end the date early like three times. She keeps telling you it's such a bad date. Are, are you sure you don't want to go? No one ever goes. Even though we're basically being, because they don't want the show to end early. You know, they want to see what happens if, she, if they keep saying yes to her. So people kind of... Uh, Understandably, I think I mean, we're not saying this to be like people are sheep, no, but um, no, but, but we're just using it's like a very human thing. Yeah, yeah, just human behavior mm -hmm. to sort of yeah. like our understanding of it and what we've also learned from doing this work. This teaches you a lot about what humans are like, mm. <laughs> for better or worse. Yeah. So I want to. Uh, earlier, you mentioned this idea of, of of having a lot of experience in making transformational experiences for actors, but but wanting to sort of focus more on transformational. Audiences, mm -hmm. which is really 
what game designers are trying to do. Uh, a lot, you know, when we are designing a game, though, we're designing a system that you're in control of mm. as a player. So mm. you come to it with a sense of empowerment mm. um, and an expectation for that empowerment to transform you. Um, and and I'm wondering, just from my own experiences with with various types of immersive theater, because when I come to those, I I don't feel that sense of empowerment. I usually feel a sense of, you know, excitement and tellation of breaking rules and there's going to be something unexpected. I know that's going to happen, but I don't know what it is. Scary. And I don't really know mm -hmm. what the rules are. Yeah. So so I'm just wondering if you could speak to like, you know, how do mm -hmm. we how do we get to that point where we can create these transformative Experience. That's a great question. I mean, you're basically asking the fundamental question of what transforms us, um, which is a really cool, interesting question. And you're right. One thing that transforms us can be power. I think another one can be um, vulnerability um, and gentleness and softness. I would say the, the ways I'm interested in people uh, being transformed probably air towards that and immersive, partially because that's also what that form is better suited for. Um, you're right. I mean, I think there might be people who did red flags and were empowered by how much they could do, and that was part of their experience. But I think the people who've been most transformed by it let her lead, but then expose themselves, and then she's exposing herself back, and the shared vulnerability and intimacy is actually what they found transforming. So that's the kind of transformation I'm more naturally drawn to. Um, I'm also, I also believe deeply in the transformative power of, like, stories when you're fully allowing them into your body. Um, so like, you know, and we can get that even from just like traditional 2D framed media like movies. I mean, th there have been movies that have changed my life. So one part of it is like continuing to tell the good story. Another part of it is creating gentleness and um, safety so that people can be their, their true selves and to heal parts of themselves. I'm interested in sites of healing. I'm interested in what we are all we, I think we all get to adulthood somewhat fractured, and then I think our job is to try to heal ourselves back whole over the course of our lives. And so I am interested in creating sites where if people would like to heal part of themselves, they can. I mean, that was part of what Rochester 1996 was about. I think, like, I, I think it was for everybody, but I think the people who got the most out of it were former pastor's kids, because it was about a pastor's kid, or former Christians. And they were able to process some of their relationship to Christianity um, from childhood. Um, Sorry. Yeah, it depends. Yeah, no, no, please. Um, that the, one did yeah. have a debrief. Uh, the, so the van takes you from the, the first location, which is the church. Uh, in a, it was in a theater. Uh, and then you drive to the pastor's house, my house. And then you have to get back to where you started. And we decided to make that out of story. So the show ends at the house. We all had cookies and lemonade and string cheese. For like 15 minutes, yeah. Yep. People use the bathroom, they take a break, the actors change their clothes, and then some of the actors come out and say hello in their street clothes, and then we all get back in the van and drive back to Hollywood. Yeah. And there's an opportunity there for people to just talk quietly with the person you're with. Because we don't keep your cell phones back. Oh yeah. Oh right. No cell phones. Mm. No cell phones. Mm. <laughs> yeah, we keep them to the very end. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. And I would say that was the beginning of us doing debriefs. We are going to, in the next piece, do a more curated version yes. of that. Yeah. This was yeah. just scratching the surface for us, and we and I think it was baseline in terms of what's responsible and effective. Mm -hmm. I think we we want to make that a more intentional space moving forward. Yeah. yeah. Just Please. when I was doing uh, Sleep No More, I had a similar experience. I mean, I've seen it four times, and I've had a similar experience the first time where I felt like I did it wrong. Oh my god, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, but one of the more impactful times that I did it, I went with friends and we split up, but we met back at this, this sort of the bar, whatever, the speakeasy area, yes. and, and did our own personal debrief. I love and that. I, and I remember thinking, this is what's important. This yeah. is the, this is, you yes. know, what happened in there was the, you know, that was the alchemy that made this happen. Yeah, that's right? beautiful. Yeah. yeah. You know? mm -hmm. so Perfectly said. Yeah. yeah, I'm so, I couldn't agree with you more. I think it's essential. Yeah, there was a study done, I think it was by the Wallace Foundation, that involved uh, new work 
at a number of regional theaters across the country. Uh, not immersive work, but new work. And they found through that study that people really want tools for having that like over drinks or car ride home conversation. Mm -hmm. They don't want to be in a talk back where they're sitting and they're trapped them and right. we have to tell you what we thought right now. But they want after 20, you know, 20 minutes to half an hour after the show, they want like some structure to help guide a conversation. Yeah. So that's something yeah. I think about a lot as we, as we mm -hmm. design these show experiences more yep like Hamiltonville had it built in because if you wanted to come back and hang around the box office you could uh, and the drum did because there was a party after the party if you wanted red flags intentionally doesn't have it because I'm a jerk and I wanted to play with what happens if we just <laughs> drop you off a cliff at the end but that one is intentionally emotionally volatile and then I would say I said Rochester 1986 did it and we described it but again it wasn't as curated as I ultimately want that to be for that intensive a piece so the next piece, particularly one if it was 12 hours, like you'd need an hour to two hour long. Like that has to be built in. You have to build in the come down or else mm -hmm. it's irresponsible. And less exciting because you're so right. That's where so much processing happens. Processing, yes. That's so exactly. great. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, all the LARP people are yeah. all about the Yes, yeah. I love yes. that. I know. There's been a lot of um, great lessons learned from that community in terms of physical consent and mm -hmm. some of those things. The sort of like... Yes, the whole form is group storytelling, but you have to storytell about the story you told. Yeah. Because that's how we process everything. Totally. So, like, you've got to go back to the language center and be like, what just happened? Like, yeah. it's yeah. just so important. So, yeah, we're all about that. Um, so, you mentioned, uh, sorry, you mentioned uh, that you, like, there, there was, like, a few people that maybe try to, like, test the boundaries and, like, maybe try to break it a little bit uh, and just to see what they, how, how far they can go. Yeah. Uh, not necessarily out of, like, I guess, malintention, but, like, uh, like is it, I mean, can you tell, like, I mean, like, maybe, like, one of the more memorable experiences of how that, like, or any interesting, like, takeaways from when someone who tried to do that? And, yeah, like, there's a couple, there's from, two different yeah. examples, like, one that's sort of a type and one that's a specific, specific example that taught us a lot. So in Red Flags, I feel like there was only one person, maybe two, who really tried to like poke it and see what happened. Yeah, we had people like, one person was like, turned to our actor and was like, I don't think you're really drinking your beer. Which she was, <laughs> for the record, oh, she, was. she was. Yeah, and then it was like, you're not drinking your beer. When was your when was your character born? What year? Like, was it amazing now? Wow. Like, Our actor's a badass and knew all the answers. Knew all the answers. But my God, what what have you come here for? <laughs> and ultimately, it's like, well, sure, fun, man. Like, you're yeah. only hurting your own experience. You're so odd. I would like you to have a nice time, but if you aren't gonna play along then that's your problem, it's not really my problem. I know. The other one that always comes to mind is the one at Indie where Is this where the person took the dagger the off the wall? The <gasps> I knew you were going to say that. Yeah. So in the Hamiltonville, there's a dagger on the wall. There's a lot of stuff. There's tons of stuff on the wall. Tons of things. There's a sleeping worm mask as a little Easter egg. Yeah, there's tons of stuff in the Hamiltonville. But one of them's a dagger. And the person got in and was like, it's a game. I need a weapon. And then <laughs> the dagger. And the, I don't remember who was with them. But they, she dealt with it. Yeah. She just improvised and was kind of like, oh, no, no, that's our son. <laughs> like, I don't remember what she said. I don't think she shamed him. It's always this interesting balance of if somebody makes you an offering, you don't want to shame them, but you want to make sure everything's safe. Mm -hmm. And that the show's not broken. So it sounded like she handled it well at the time. I can't remember what she did. But. I don't exactly remember the outcome. But yeah, it was basically like the actor felt comfortable improvising and could steer it back to her. Yeah, that it was fine. Scene. And then we learned to wire the dagger to the wall. <laughs> and we learned, it was interesting, we learned a lot about uh, audience expectations yes. when we performed it in the game. Yeah. Because there was a bit of an expectation of a game. How um, do I win this? How do I win this? Yeah, what's my objective? And there's no, the objective is to experience. To take in the theater. <laughs> yeah, and like also in Denver, it was a film festival that brought us out as part of their interactive division. So film festivals audi audiences, we learned we had to drop the meta narrative entirely. People were confused if we acted like so at the original festival and at Indicade, we acted like Moving Shadow is real and that Marlon Pine, the we dead. We're part of the Moving Shadow. Yes, Marlon Pine is real. We like we expanded into an ARG at the film festival. They were just like, oh cool, you're the Moving Shadow. Like you could tell that they were not even vaguely getting it. 
So we had to just drop that and just be capital W, and that was fine. But it was it's interesting to learn about those things. I would say the one other really crazy example that's worth noting is in Red Flags, the one or two men, it's always been men, who've gotten in touch with her afterwards and tried to get a second date. Very few people, like I said, but she's had to sort of uh, clearly, it sort of depends on the person. We've always said to her, if anybody ever writes you and you don't want to deal with them, obviously don't, just refer them to us, we will step in. Most cases, she's just kind of, it's been the, the men being like, oh, hey, that part where you hold hands, do you Does hold hands? Yeah. <laughs> and so then she's like, yes, it's a show exactly. that's scripted. It happens with everybody. And then they never, never bother her. Glad you enjoyed the show. Yeah, exactly. Glad you enjoyed the show. And, and she's nice about it, but she's firm and clear, and that's the right thing. And the boundaries mm -hmm. are redrawn. And we've been very lucky, again, that, that nothing else crazier has happened. But, but again, most people are good people. Yeah, and you know what's funny is I hear through the grapevines so from other immersive companies that seem to deal with more yeah. drama. I do not get how this is happening. I don't know if we are lucky. I don't know if it's because of our excessive use of eye contact. I don't know. <laughs> don't do anything crazy. Don't do anything crazy. Yeah. We see you. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, ours have know. tighter, uh, we don't do sandbox shows. We've never done, well, we've done things with sandbox components, but not a true sandbox show. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's part of it. And I, I do think we're, we, we actually are really obsessed with teaching the audience the rules and maybe a way that's, my belief is this, a lot of immersive shows, you show up and they rattle off 10 rules to you out of world. Just like, can't do this, can't do this, can't do this, blah, blah, blah. Audiences can't remember more than two, is my belief. I think three tops. I try to get it down to one or one, zero rules. One thing you have to be told and everything else you infer. My, yeah. my, most of our shows are zero now. Red Flags is zero, Hamilton Wheel zero, and uh, Rochester 1996 were zero rules. So like my, like this is my own weird thing. I'm not saying this is the right way to do immersive, but like for me, zero rules. Rules should all be taught in the world intuitively. Um, or stated in world in a way that you don't even realize you've just taken in a You're rule. You're just gonna get mm -hmm. more people adhering to the rules if you do it that way. That's so what I think, because I think if you show up, Oh, go ahead. So, so more implicit, you're saying, is like more yes. effective than explicit. That is my feeling. Implicit okay. rules are more effective than explicit. Um, the rules also should thematically fit your subject matter. Too many people are like, I'll just do a sandbox show and then I'll find content to fill it. I'm like, no, 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 no. Content first, format, audience interactivity second. So I think that's the other reason people don't break our rules as much is because I think our audience interactivity fits the themes of the show. And it is, it is not, we do not go into a project saying, we want to do a show where people interact in this way, at this point, in this way, at this point, where they can speak. No, no. It's, we are telling a story or we are talking about a big idea and we get to the interactivity. Yeah. Further down the line with the, in the ensemble mm. process. Yeah. So in Rochester 1996, the main character is this queer 16-year-old girl in 1996 in, in Rochester, hence the title. And you are her confidant, essentially. And the audience rules change depending on the act of the show we're in. So they keep shifting. So we had to kind of, within the world, teach the audience like three different rule changes. Um, and the rule changes mirror the main character's emotional state. So when she feels invisible, you're invisible. When like she's exposed, you're exposed. When, she, when things are chaotic, it does become sandbox format at the very end when things have, in her life have totally broken open mm -hmm. and there are no rules. And in fact, you kind of drive home to her house and she gets out of the van. Her she's found out this terrible secret about her dad. She's like so upset. You get home to her house and she turns to you and she's like, she's like, has a little mini monologue. And at the end of it, she's like, you can follow me or you can stay with him. There are no rules. Everything is meaningless. Thanks, dad. And then she storms inside. <laughs> so she shouts the final set of audience rules to you in character in a way that mirrors how she's feeling. And so you're kind of like, yes, those are the rules. I've heard them, but like, I'm delighted that, hopefully delighted that that's how I've heard them and they make, they feel, they feel right. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's what we're playing with. Mm. What is, I mean, we are a little over time. Does anyone have a last sort of question? Or? Okay. Well then, great. I think we'll say thank you so much, Lauren thank and Monica for coming to spend the evening with us. And um, I hope this will, I'm sure this will not be the last time we see you here at IMGD. And um, yeah, thanks so much. Thank you for thank having you. us. Right.